This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. I am Chris Kreicho. And I'm Stephen Caradini, and we're back. This is it's season seven, episode season one. Season seven, episode one. Bah, 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 <laughs> Wait, bah, this bah, isn't bah, one of our bah, Star Wars bah. episodes, Stephen. I mean, anytime at this point we say episode <laughs> anything, I think like Star Wars, especially episode one, which I will go to bat for. So, uh, And we're back recording after a while, so now I have to do my obligatory Stephen stay in front of the mic. <laughs> well, it's going to be harder today because sitting is sort of uncomfortable, so I'm, I'm on it. The things we do for you. Stephen things- deals with, with uncomfort, and I deal with audio mixing issues that come from my, my co-hosts flailing around. That's true. I we do these things for you, listeners. We, we do. We do. So we are starting season seven. And so if you didn't see our Twitter announcements, we're going to be doing something slightly different this season. The last few seasons, we've sort of developed a plan for the episodes and a plan for the seasons. And we've thought about how do all of these things work together toward a great sum goal. And we thought about that goal, and then we broke it down, and then we reverse engineered that goal into episodes based on topics that we'd previously come up with. So what you ended up seeing, dear listeners, was a long slate of episodes that built on each other towards a goal. This season's going to be a little not quite like that. Well, you're still going to see us working towards a goal, but the difference is that we didn't plan anything. And there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is we are going to spend a lot less time saying what we already have a pretty good idea of what we think to you, and a lot more time discussing, debating, arguing at times our way towards something out loud together on air. And the reason is we're both interested and increasingly interested in what I've tentatively labeled for an essay I'm working on, and we'll see if I ever manage to finish it, because right now my record with finishing essays over the last few years is basically I don't. Uh, It's basically they are winning slowly episodes. Right. Uh, And the frame here is this idea of tech criticism and hope. And the reason that framing seems interesting to us is because we see a lot of very good, very astute tech criticism happening out there, and we'll refer to it throughout the season. We've referred to it in previous seasons. And we see a trend that goes back actually many decades of very astute tech criticism that recognizes the pitfalls and the ills of a technocratic society, of a world where we wrap everything around technique and technology and solving our problems that way. And you've, if you've followed along with us at home in previous seasons, you've heard that we're not really on that train, but we're also not on the train labeled, all technology is grr, arg, grr. And that's obviously not exactly where someone like Jacques Ellul is either. He's a bit more articulate than that. Uh, It's also not where someone like Alan Jacobs is or Shannon Valor or any of a number of people we have referenced and will reference. But what we see is that by and large, there are critics of technology, and this is good and right. And there are techno-utopians, and this is less good and less right. There don't seem to be a lot of people doing what we think needs to happen as a complement to tech criticism, which is framing a view of technology that is not utopian, 
that takes on board fully the weight of those proper criticisms and yet remains hopeful, that rejects technocratic views of reality, that recognizes that there are things technology is good for and things that it's not, and we shouldn't try to solve all of our problems that way, but also looks and says, positively as well as negatively, what does that look like? And we don't see a lot of people trying to do that. Right. So we're going to do this crazy bold things and try and inject ourselves into that conversation a bit. But we also don't know what those answers are. Right. So you're going to hear us flailing our way out loud together toward those things over the course of the rest of this season. That's right. In a lot of ways, this is going back to what we originally conceived of winning slowly as, which is season zero. Yeah. We started the podcast because we kept hearing from people when we would be in person talking to each other and having discussions and often outright disagreements and sometimes full on intellectual arguments that people found it interesting and people Mm -hmm. thought our conversations were illuminating. So we're going to do that thing. And we have no idea how it's going to go because we haven't really done it before quite like this, especially since we've been reasonably competent at podcasting in a more general sense. That's true. That's true. So to recap what Chris just said in a shorter way is that there (laughs) are... Because that was already a contender for longest monologue of the season. That was... I I mean, it's the... It is winning at this point. It's the cont- it is the contender. Um, there True. aren't any other ones at the moment. There's techno utopians, and there's techno dystopians, mm-hmm. and there are very few people who are thinking about the ethics of technology that fall in the middle. Either thinking about how technology is slightly bad and putting us on a bad trajectory in the long term, or how technology can be potentially turned towards good in a limited sense and put us on a good trajectory for the long term. So the problem with having things at the extremes is that there's very little conversation that can happen between the people at extremes because they've already hardened themselves to the point where they have decided that the extreme position is the right one. <laughs> so there's there's not a whole lot of conversation that you can do. You can just shout across a stage at each other like Bill Nye and Ken Ham or whatever. <laughs> so So there's a lot of positioning in the middle there that we think is valuable. Now, if you've listened to this show at all, we don't necessarily take the negative tack. Technology is slightly negative and putting us on a negative path forever. Although we do mention that there are times that that is true. But what we want to focus on this season is how can we think about and posit a positive vision for technology that puts us in a limited scope of technology on a positive angle, bent, trajectory, vision, whatever you want to call it, for the future. Right. And the thing that's very interesting and very difficult, and I suspect one of the reasons that this hasn't been done is it's very easy for that to devolve into utopianism or... Or dystopianism. Right. When you say... But not that technology in the way that we often did last season for that simply to read as techno dystopianism. And what we're trying to aim for is Stephen used the word middle a fair bit. And I think that's partly right. I think I would even tweak it and say a third way in that in some ways it's not always going to be between either of those extremes. It's just going to be running off in an entirely different direction because I think the thing that both of those do at times is grant too much to technology. And one of the things we want to do is 
create this frame of thinking about these things that, as Stephen said, has a positive view of what technology can be used for, but by dint of putting limits on it, by dint of providing a frame for literally all of life and reality, which, you know, just mildly ambitious, but providing a frame for how we approach all of life and reality, specifically focused in our conversations on technology, that limits technology and places good strictures on what we try to do with technology while affirming the goods of it and trying to provide a way to move. I, As listeners know, I'm sometimes uncomfortable with the notion of pure progress or moving forward as the right descriptor of these things. But progress. to move in a healthier direction than either dystopianism or utopianism can afford. Right. And I think one of the things that is important to me as I approach this idea, I'll drop a link to this in the show notes. There's an article uh, on Medium about cryptocurrency, but it's not in the important part of it isn't about cryptocurrency. It's about <laughs> a, a brief reading of Thomas Sowell, a political economist and social theorist, who talks about the conflict of visions and this idea that the way that people think about the world is in a, a, a vision. They either see that things are constrained or unconstrained. And so this idea of it being unconstrained is that th there are no limits. The only limits are things that we haven't succeeded at yet. <laughs> and so everything can be achieved, uh, or everything can go horribly awry. There's no limits to the badness, and there's no limits to the goodness. It's just yeah. all human action. Whereas a constrained vision says, no, there are limits. There are aspects of human nature. There are aspects of society. There are aspects of raw materials. There are aspects of uh, the the economy, there are aspects of the world at large that always and ever will constrain, and that no matter what you're doing, you're working within a constrained system, and you're doing difficult trade-offs no matter where you go. There's a Christian ethicist named Oliver O'Donovan who is, I warn you if you get interested and go to pick up his reading, one of those writers who is very dense in his prose but often worthwhile nonetheless. And he'll use the phrase, and adherents of Donovan will use the phrase of givenness. And this idea that there is something about us, not everything about us, but there are, there are things about us that we should take as gifts, as given, not merely as constraints to be overcome, but as things that are good in our design, our nature, our being as we find ourselves. And that's a very difficult thing to tease out. I was having a conversation elsewhere online with some friends this morning about the limitations I see in natural law arguments because it's very difficult for them to avoid committing the naturalistic fallacy that what is is what ought in some way. And so identifying those kinds of constraints, those kinds of givennesses correctly, especially as Christians who think that a lot of things that we see in the world are indicative of our brokenness, of our fallenness, is very difficult. Mm -hmm. This is, as we came back to often last season, a place where what we need is wisdom and deep wisdom, not merely, boom, here's your proof text verse from in our case, the Bible or your, your secularist creed or whatever your source of ethics may be, Aristotle or the Quran or Marx or what have you, whatever, but rather a deep engagement with the 
what I would call the structure of reality and with the goodness in that and the badness in that as we find it, and then grappling hard with what it looks like to engage specifically with technology, given that reality, given that deep structure of the world we find ourselves in. Which is a great segue to the book that Alan Jacobs just published called (laughs) In the Year of Our Lord, 1943. And let me tell you, Stephen and I learned, again, a very important lesson called Always Be Recording, because we had a great argument about this book in our prep for the season that we weren't recording. Right. Well, I'm still ready to have another (laughs) argument about this book. Here we go again! Even though we had an argument, I now have an argument about the argument. (laughs) So, the, the background here is that Jacobs wrote a book called In the Year of Our Lord, 1943, and it's a great book for Genuinely. about 205 pages. I'll, I'll call it 215, but therein lies the crux. Right. There's about 10 pages at the end of the book. Uh, I'm actually going to pull the book off my shelf right now. Hold on, <laughs> dear listeners. All right, so here we are. No, no. I said 205 because I remembered accurately. There's only 206 pages in the book. Yeah, it's the last page. It's the last page that I have a problem with. (laughs) The first 205 pages I'm really cool with. And what's in those 205 pages is a masterful assessment of the ways that five different Christian thinkers – in the years leading up to and away from 1943, articulated a vision of the future that would sort of repudiate or mitigate or even chart an entirely different course away from the technocratic society that might exist after the war once the technocracy that allowed the war to be won was then turned towards the society creation uh, of the post-war era. And so the there's there's five thinkers, as I said. It's uh, Jacques Martin, uh, T.S. Eliot, C.S. Lewis, W.H. Uh, Auden, and Simone Weil, with apologies to Martin, who I'm probably butchering his name because he's French and I'm not. <laughs> And so all the five of these thinkers were working at the same time, but largely independent of each other. They they had occasional meetings with each other, but they weren't really working together in any sense. But they were all trying to articulate this vision of what it means to work through technology and past technology into a society that can be uh, healthy and holistic, even knowing that there's technology that won the war. Right. And they got there in part because... Well, most of them were people who had lived at that point through both world wars, and none of them wanted to see another one. Exactly. But all of them were also concerned about the ways by which the war was apparently going to be won. And the ways that the war was apparently going to be won, and indeed was ultimately won, they thought were deeply connected to how they had gotten there in the first place. Which is a valid assessment. Right. And so they're criticisms had to do largely with uh, education and how to educate people to think and to exist essentially outside of the technocratic milieu. They don't say that expressly, but that's the the sort of sum that you get once I read it, at least. Right. And so – you're th- you may be thinking, dear listeners, how can this be controversial? This sounds like a thing that you both guys would love. <laughs> and True. low. And low. We did love the first 205 pages. But what happens in the last page? So there's 
a a segue in the the last chapter, the afterward technically, where he moves from the the consideration of the past towards the consideration of the future, which is a standard move in in history and in uh, all the sorts of of work that go on with the history of ideas and the history of of technology and things like this. Not just what did they think, but what does what they thought mean now. Right. And so Jacobs says this. He says, but their prescriptions were never implemented and could never have been. They came perhaps a century too late after the reign of technocracy had become so complete that none can foresee the end of it while this world lasts. Elul, Jacques Elul, who is introduced in the afterward, was more realistic to choose the simple hope for miraculous deliverance. If ever again there arises a body of thinkers eager to renew Christian humanism, they should take great pains to learn from those we have studied here, both what they agreed upon and what divided them. But may those future thinkers also be quickly alert to the signs of the times. Stephen hates this ending. Oh my gosh, I hate it. I hate it. And it's because there's it's, – it's so counter in my mind to what the rest of the book stands for in that it says, after the reign of technocracy had become so complete that none can foresee the end of it while this world lasts. And I thought that was depressing. And then Chris was like, do you know what that's a reference to? And I was like, no, I don't. He's almost directly quoting – J.R.R. Tolkien's description from the Council of Elrond, and here my nerdiness comes out, because as soon as I encountered that phrase, I knew exactly what it was pointing to. Yes, I've read The Lord of the Rings more times than I care to admit. All right, get to it. Tell him. Gandalf describes the reign of Sauron this way, if Sauron should recover the ring. The reign of Sauron! (laughs) The theoretical (laughs) reign of Sauron where he covers the world with darkness forever! (laughs) Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Like... These people were literally putting forward a positive vision of the future. Like, here's how we go forward. And, and like, Jacobs is like, no, Sauron won. The world is currently covered with darkness, and it will be covered with darkness, and no one can foresee the end of it. <laughs> literally, I can see the end of it. That's what this podcast is about. That's literally what we're doing here. In many ways, it's fair to say that our argument about this passage is the basic foundation on which this season is built. There's a reason that we we're reading you that and having this argument, because in a lot of ways, you have heard, if you've listened to us before, that Stephen is more the optimist between the two of us. And he would call me more the pessimist. I would call myself more the realist, as pessimists are wont to do. Ah, uh, yeah. And... I would call him more the idealist. <laughs> Optimists just go around like saying, hey, things can be better. And like whatever you want to call yourself, go around saying everything is worse than it is. <laughs> You're not an optimist. You're an idealist. You don't have any sense of what's going on in the world. You're just off in a fairy tale. And I'm not a pessimist. This is how real <laughs> things work. Yoice. So I've, I've read Jacob's take there no less – Harshly a criticism of the last 70 years than Stephen does, but I did not take it as quite so hopeless. And the fact that Jacobs quotes Tolkien as he does there is one of the reasons for that, because Tolkien is the one who coined the word eucatastrophe, the sudden turn to good that you can't see coming. His book 
hangs on this. In fact, not only the Lord of the Rings, but the Silmarillion, his published uh, in a way and mostly unpublished, even greater than the Lord of the Rings epic sweeping myth, both hang on this notion that sometimes things get so bad that you can't see any victory. And the end of the Lord of the Rings is very nearly this. So if it's been a while, or if you've never actually read or watched the Lord of the Rings, the book and the movie come to this point where the good guys' armies are surrounded and massively outnumbered, and they're there just as a bid to hopefully help the hero, Frodo, destroy the ring. And Frodo gets to the very point where he could do so and says, no, I have come this far, but I will not do what I came here to do. And he takes the ring for himself. And the only reason the good guys win is because evil contains in itself the seed of its own undoing. And no one could have seen this coming, and no one could have looked for this. The closest you get is Gandalf having a note, even earlier than his comment at the Council of Elrond, that perhaps even Gollum, wicked, miserable, twisted creature that he is, has yet some part to play in all of this. And from this, the tragedy is averted. Sauron doesn't come to win and rule all the world and so on. But Tolkien's view was it seems to me that you cannot count on those turns. You may hope for them, but you cannot count on them, and you cannot be sure they are coming. But here's the deal. Like, one, in this book, he said, Jacob's notes, by 1943, pretty much everyone knew the Allies were going to win. It was just going to take time. And so even in the the context of this book, like, the reason people were doing this sort of work is because they knew they were going to win. But win what? Well, yeah, exactly. Win what? That's the whole point of what they were right. thinking about. But so, they already knew they were going to win. So a uh, catastrophe. Also worth note here is that Tolkien thought they lost, too, in an important way. The foreword to the second edition of The Lord of the Rings, he notes that had had this been an allegory— Things would have gone rather differently than they do in the book, because the ring would have been a stand-in for atomic power, and he, he elaborates at great length. It's very clear that he thinks basically what Jacobs thinks in terms of the technocracy in play. So there isn't a, a direct analogy there. What I'm getting at in my citation of Tolkien here is that if all of these thinkers did indeed fail, as at the end, Jacobs thinks they did did, and that we do live in a technocratic regime. And I think he's largely right in that. Well, then we have to start talking about what a technocratic regime really means and looks like. Yes. But continue. If we grant that, then we are sitting at a point where, well, Gandalf wasn't heated at the Council of Elrond, and things went amiss as Gandalf foresaw they would. And in that scenario, how would help come? Well, we don't know. And this is ultimately what Stephen and I want to do, is try to ask, what would a hopeful turn look like? We can't count on it, but we can certainly hope for it. And equally to the point, perhaps perhaps the turning point was not when Jacobs thought it was. Perhaps people like Jacobs are serving as Gandalfs and can help steer the course back in a right direction. Right. Jacobs notes much earlier in the book that many of the things that came to fruition here were centuries in the making. Yeah. Simone Weil argued that they were coming from a turn that happened in the 13th century. Which is sort of awesome. We should we should take a moment and appreciate how awesome Simone Weil is. <laughs> True story. When I read that part of the book, I was like, that is the most audacious thing I've ever read. 
I love it. Yep. <laughs> the church turning on the Albigenses. That was the, that was the thing. It's like, oh, yeah. that's a yeah. really interesting claim. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't uh, catch that one as it went by actually <laughs> there, Simone, but thanks for letting me know about that. <laughs> right. So one of my arguments, and I think it's about as winning slowly an argument as you're going to get, is that perhaps we can't see from here to the end of that technocratic regime. But that doesn't mean an end can never come. And perhaps, as I have written in my newsletter, perhaps part of the way we get there is by people like Jacob sounding that call Mm -hmm. and then people who have the vision picking it up and trying to do the hard work that in our feeble way we're going to try to do this season and probably future seasons. Right. So my counter argument to this is that One, yes, we are obviously in a technocratic regime at this particular moment. So that is not not under debate at this point, basically. That's what we did for the first six seasons. However, comparing the technocratic regime to the theoretical reign of Sauron (laughs) casting darkness over the entire world seems a bit harsh, because no matter how bad you think the world is in its technological milieu right now, I really don't think that it's as bad as Sauron ruling the entire world. (laughs) I really don't think that. Like, is it as bad as... Uh, you know, the the sort of perpetual chasing that happens in the first book and the sort of dread that happens throughout the entire Fellowship of the Ring, it might be that bad. I've yeah. been on Twitter recently. Yeah, it might be that bad. It can definitely be that bad, especially when you fall into like one of the dark holes accidentally, like someone randomly steals your tax refund and like starts stealing your identity. Like it's that bad. But to 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 argue that this is how it looks. And I honestly am arguing against Chris's interpretation of Jacob. So if Jacob is like, <laughs> oh yeah, like I really wasn't intentionally going for that sort of bleakness, then like bully, I'm happy to hear that. But the, the ways that that is interpreted is so limiting to future Ends. Now, to be credit to Jacob, the last sentences of the book are, if ever someone comes along that wants to do this, congratulations, we've come along. We want to do this. <laughs> Though we're we here. Don't, we don't think we're probably quite in the same tier of thinker as Lewis and Maritain and Vile and Alvin Elliot. Yeah, we're, we're definitely not, Just, not nope. in – no. We're, we're, we are the, the, the effort. We are not the <laughs> success, perhaps. Um, but, but, we're, but this is what we want to do. And so I think that there's, there's a foreclosing of the possibilities that are out there. And it's not a total foreclosure. He leaves it open. But part of what we're doing here with Winning Slowly and what I'm hope, we're hoping to do with this season is to say, look, there are ways that we can point towards this future. And, and this is where Chris and I differ uh, in magnitude, if not totally, is that I think we can work towards that. I think there are steps you can take to roll things back. They are small. And you have to do them slowly, but in the end, you can win. And so that's what I see with Winning Slowly is that when you develop a plan, when you develop a vision, you don't just set it on the shelf and say, look at this pretty vision. Like, it doesn't become a painting. It becomes a way that you work forward into the future. Right. And I think from our previous argument, as well as what I hear Stephen getting at here, I think what I would say is that we share that sense 
I mean, in in some ways, my half of this came out of starting to work on this essay because I think there is hope and I think there is something to work toward. And I think that we can get somewhere. But also the timescales on which I see that happening are closer aligned to Jacob's none can see the end of it from here language. And while he's making an allusion to Sauron, I don't think he's saying that it's quite the same. This is one of the tricks with interpreting art in general and artistic allusions in the midst of a nonfiction book in particular. What exactly did he mean by that? That's why I said I was arguing against your ideas and not against his ideas at this point. But... The extent to which we can be confident in success, I think, is one of the places where Stephen and I fall in somewhat, not wholly, but somewhat different places. And it'll be really interesting to tease that out over the course of the season as we hit on things and hopefully sparks fly in productive ways. Yeah, I I tend to think that it's, it's not a thing that is entirely rolled back and replaced wholesale. I don't think you just get to like replace everything, even at a long scale. But I do think that there's, as we just mentioned at the beginning of the of the episode, a positive way forward that takes the parts of the technocratic regime that actually do have positive aspects, uses those forward, and then replaces the things that are bad and undergirds those same techniques with this is why the bad techniques are bad and this is why the good impulses that are part of these things that we have accepted with technology are good and then you can go forward because you know we've talked before about technology is not just digital technology it's everything around us right so we are technology at this point in terms of how we move through like space Everything it's almost like you're, you're saying that we live under a technocratic regime so thorough that none can see it's sorry couldn't resist. <laughs> okay, well then what you're saying Chris <laughs> is that we should go back to pre-architectural times because that's technology. What I'm saying and I think what Jacobs is saying is that the work to do to imagine a genuinely non-technocratic regime And not just to imagine it for you and me, but actually to see that kind of sweeping change happen in the world that, of course, we're not saying boo technology because, again, fire. We can have the conversation about Phaedrus and all of these things with writing and reading and and so on. But to have a genuinely non-technocratic regime will require an act of imagination substantially greater and of affecting that vision that comes out of that work of imagination that is on the scale of changes like the Reformation and the Enlightenment in its audacity and its effect. And that's an awfully big thing to set out to try to do. Now, that doesn't mean it's impossible, but that's where my sense that confidence in one's success in such a project is maybe not where I land. Hope, yes, but confidence, yeah. well, that's a rather audacious thing to be confident in. Well, yeah, I, I get that. I'm just that audacious, I guess. Like, <laughs> let's do this. And and I share that audacity for doing it. Thus, winning slowly season seven, everyone. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we do it's... have these little bits of difference in in temperament. I was thinking as you talked a minute ago, 
a way to summarize Stevens and my difference in temperament that I have mulled on and never put so concretely in all the many years we have known each other now <laughs> is that Stephen is progressive by temperament and I am conservative by temperament. And this does not mean so much that it shakes out exactly that way in politics, though if you nailed us down on certain <laughs> political things, it would shake out more that way. But it's the instincts. <laughs> all those instincts. They're there. I'm going to go back to that part where you were talking about like being a realist and like you just like to name stuff, and <laughs> tell people what they are and how they do it. Hey, hey, I did come up with a really useful taxonomy that got us all the way through, what was that, season five pretty effectively? Yeah. All about the naming of things, man. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> My skepticism towards your naming of my terms in what I am in the first section may also extend <laughs> to the second section. Well, what I mean by that is that of the two of us, if you went back and did a word count of the number of times one of us, each of us said progress or move forward over the history of the show, I guarantee you'd come out like 10 or 20 to one for me. Um, okay. Data <laughs> scientists listening to winning slowly. <laughs> Find, see if you can find some transcripts, some transcripting software, and see if you can do this for us. Because I do not believe that it's that high. I think both of us have talked about this. I mean, like, for oh, yes. starters, it's not a matter of the um, whether it's a thing. It's it's the it's the ratios. I don't. I don't. I'm not on. I'm not in on this, <laughs> listeners. I'm not in on this. This is what the season's going to be like, listeners. It's true. Our wives are going to love it. I'm not in on this. I'm not I'm not pulling that progressive mantle down on me. It's not a thing. Okay, how what what terms would you use? Now I want to know. Well, this is this is not a way that I distinguish us, right? I I if if we I would say, let's think here, that the ways that we see technology developing, you're literally a web developer, mm -hmm. the ways that we see technology developing move at different speeds. And the ways that we see technologies moving in positive directions move at different speeds. So I think that there are ways that you can turn the ship, so to speak, and those ways of turning the ship, which I still think the ship needs to be turned, it should be noted, the ship can be turned faster than you think the ship can be turned. In that analogy, I'm not sure if we shouldn't be building a different ship. <laughs> That's also fair. The ships that we are building, I build that ship faster than you build the ship. It's mostly a matter of speed. And that's because we have different underlying temperaments. Optimism versus realism. I'll let you have that. And I do think that there are a lot of people that want to see this thing happen. Now, I think there are a lot of people that don't want to see this thing happen. Right. Read oil companies. Just as an example. Read Silicon Valley. Well, that's a much more, that's a squishier problem. It's a stickier wicket, let's say. Stickier than oil? It's stickier than oil. It's like super sticky, <laughs> like ultra sticky. So that's what we're going to be doing this season, dear listeners. Buckle up. We're going to be arguing about whether something is possible at various timescales in various ways. And we will be covering individual topics. So, you know, there it's not going to totally just be us uh, ex expositing into the air, but we will be using lots of different things as starting points. Indeed. Uh, one other note, 
before you go, it, we're not actually doing it before you go. That would be harkening way back to season zero. <laughs> but before you go, we have a new publishing schedule for true. Uh, winning slowly. So we went back and looked at our publishing schedule and figured out when we actually publish and when we don't publish. And we found out that we almost never publish in June, November, or December. Yep. Just by dint of happenstance. We did some hard data science. That's called, we, we looked at our website. Yeah, we, we evaluated a very small data source comprehensively. <laughs> um, and so we've decided that since we've just fallen into that rhythm and it fits with the rhythms of our lives uh, subconsciously, we're going to consciously do that and we're going to say, the season is going to run a couple episodes until until June, and then we're going to take June off, and then we're going to do July through the end of October and take November and December off, and then in January, hopefully start season eight. The regular rate will be every other week. If that is apt to change, we should in general, barring one of us getting violently ill or something, we should in general know about that. So we'll try to let you know ahead yep. of time. Yeah. And part of the reason we've we've implemented this is so that we can keep ourselves on track. And part of it is that this is sort of what we've achieved even with massive life changes. And so seeing as one of us at least will be going through massive life changes in the next few months, we still think we can achieve this, even if we do have a, a new baby. So Yay for Steven! Yay, new babies! All right, well, the music at the beginning of the episode was Mi Na Si by Panfor. It's Spanish. Thanks, as always, to everyone sponsoring the show, in particular to Nathaniel Blaney. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash winning slowly or cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. We are using those funds in nice ways, including for the interview we released between seasons and for an upcoming interview. So we appreciate it. Uh, We still give 10% of everything that we get to the Internet Archive because we've got to keep the Internet around. Do we? Uh, we we do, Chris. I, I we could do. not resist. It was just too, it was too good of a moment. We do. <laughs> Maybe not Twitter, but the rest <laughs> of the internet. We need to keep that around. On that note, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks See you in listening. two weeks.